Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 40. And the title of our time together is, He Set My Feet on a Rock. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and Lord, that you are a help. You're a help in every situation that we have. You're, you're a help uh, when, when we're sad, when we're grieving, when we're happy, when in all situations, you are our help. You are our deliverer. You are our fortress. So Lord, as we look at this text today before us in Psalm 40, Lord, I pray that you would help us. You would help us not only to see our great need of you in your word, but also that you would help us to see uh, the glory of Christ revealed in Psalm 40. And that, Lord, as we consider this great chapter before us, help us to discover even more the importance, the, the vital importance of waiting on you. Even when it seems like you're not interested, you are there, you are present, you haven't changed your mind, you haven't forgotten us. You are unchanging and your word is faithful and true and you always stand behind all that you have said because you are a faithful, true, good, just, holy, perfect God. So Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray Lord that you would use this to encourage hearts that are that are weary, that are struggling, that are that are that seem it seems like, you know what, then answer is never going to come. So, Lord, encourage hearts and minister using your word as we open it now together. And we thank you, Lord, that your word, as Isaiah fifty five eleven says, will not return without void, but that you will accomplish all that you aim to do in it and through it and for your glory and for the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 40. Psalm 40 says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multitude, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, and yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of, our, of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. 
I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be... Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the reading of God's precious word. May he bless the preaching of his word and the people who hear his word. A great principle that has guided our study of the book of Psalms is that they are all about Christ. Christ is everywhere in the Psalms. And when David faces enemies in the Psalms, he points us to Christ, who has rejected and faced his own enemies. And when David trusts God in the Psalms, he speaks for Christ, who entrusted himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 2.23 tells us. Tertullian, the great North African theologian, said about David, He sings to us of Christ, and through his voice Christ indeed also sang concerning himself. And in the Psalms, David points forward to Christ the way a model car points forward to a rental, uh, points to a real car. David is a shadow of the reality that has come in Jesus Christ. In fact, this Christ-centered approach to Psalms is confirmed again when we come to Psalm 40. And we could easily conclude that this psalm is simply about David. He was in danger. God rescued him. This psalm could easily be explained away by what we know of David's life without having to look for a fulfillment later in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40, 6 through 8. It says, these are the words of Christ. And so when Christ came into the world, he said in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. This psalm that, that fits David's own life so well is is more about christ than it is about david david was a prophet and he spoke for christ psalm 40 is about jesus faith that god would raise him up for the dead raise him up after he laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins and when christ came into the world god's will for him was to be the final the perfect sacrifice that would end every sacrifice and so Jesus waited patiently for God to lift him up from the pit of death. And God did raise him up from the dead, and Christ announced his resurrection to his people. And so we can look at Psalm 40 through three equal sections today. First, we'll hear Christ's testimony in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 40. And then we'll hear Christ's mission in Psalm 40, 6 through 10. And then we're going to hear Christ's prayer 
in Psalm 40, 11 through 17. So first, we're going to hear Christ's testimony. And this psalm begins with Christ's testimony of the deliverance of God. And we, en we enjoy hearing people's testimonies of how the Lord saved them. We enjoy hearing these testimonies at a, at a baptismal ser uh, service, or we, we might share our testimony with a new Christian friend or, or with somebody uh, that we're getting to know about what the Lord has done in our lives. God's grace never gets old, and the way he ministers to us through his word and by his spirit as the spirit drives his word further and further into our lives encourages other people and so in psalm 41 through 5 we're given jesus testimony of the way that god saved him and there seems to be four parts here to jesus thanksgiving in these verses first we're going to see how christ waited on god Psalm 40, verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you waited patiently for the Lord? It's, it's hard. It's challenging. It's, it's difficult to wait on the Lord. It seems like he may not be interested in us. There's, there's actually been a survey out there done uh, in the state of theology, and one of the of la that came out last year in the summer of 2022 and one of the main things that it said is that american christians believe by and large that god changes and one of the reasons that they think that god changes is is many christians have the wrong idea about how god answers prayer they think if god does not immediately answer their prayer like like when you drive through McDonald's or Jack in a Box or Burger King or Wendy's or whatever fast food restaurant you fancy, then God is disinterested in you. And so God must have changed his mind. And this is where understanding what theology is and what it means and those kind of things from God's word and what the church has taught is so vital for us. See, theology is not just an intellectual exercise. We often think that theology should be eminently practical, or we think that theology is just for the ivory tower. And so we have no interest in it. But theology not only is to fill our minds and to fill our hearts, but then it's to then we have a right under when we have a right understanding of, of theology, of doctrine coming from God's word, then it impacts the way that we live. And so what this verse helps us to do is it helps us to have a right theology of, of not only the Lord and as he describes himself in his word, but then it helps us to wait on that we wait on.
on him, that we trust him when it seems like there is no answer. You know, I was waiting on uh, book contracts. I kept getting rejection after rejection. I was applying for pastor positions and I was getting rejected after uh, rejection letter after rejection letter. And what I, what I didn't do is I wasn't waiting on the Lord patiently. The Lord was teaching me things should happen. right now maybe you're not ready for it and what I had to learn in this time as I've reflected on it what God was teaching me through his through this period and season of life from scripture was was waiting on him waiting on a good God in fact sometimes the answer is totally opposite from what we think that we we want and what we need God has something better and greater in mind and through those times of waiting what he's doing is he's refining us and he's shaping us and he's molding us and this is why we need to be patient patience in your life so that you can as romans 8 28 says be conformed into the image of christ see god is at work in your life it may seem like waiting is hard and it hurts but let's be honest waiting is not the same as inactivity when you're waiting you're still on the outside you're working hard on the inside in your heart your faith is hard at work as you trust the lord you wrestle with your thoughts and your emotions to believe that that God knows what's happening, that he cares for you, that he is wise, that his plans for you are good, that God is in control of every minute, of every second of your life and of all history. And when God asks you to wait, he has important work for you to do. He is aiming to conform you more into the image of Christ. And your faith is growing as you learn to trust him. Now, Jesus went through the same grueling process of trusting God and pleading with him that you and I went through, and yet he never sinned. That's what Hebrews 4, 4 through 16, 14 through 16, and Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 tell us. He is unlike us. He is sinless, and we are sinners in need of him. He was tempted, and he was tested in every respect, and yet he didn't sin. And this makes our Savior a wonderful Lord and Savior. It means that he has been tempted and tested in every respect as we are, and yet he never sinned. And with, with patience he endured. And so he is able to help every single one of us that wait. And are you waiting today? You might be waiting for a job. You might be waiting to have a child. You might be waiting for a career. You might be waiting for some education or on and on a book contract, that, that position that you want. And you might be sick and tired of waiting and waiting and waiting. 
We need to ask Christ to help us to wait patiently and to trust that God's plans and God's purposes, that he is working through all of history from the beginning to the end, God does not change. In fact, Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. And that means that we can trust our God. We call this the immutability of God, that God doesn't change. And that's what's so alarming about that statistic that I was mentioning earlier from the Ligonier State of Theology that many Christians believe today that God does change. And what this does to us is that it hinders our waiting on the Lord because we won't trust him. We won't believe that he is good and holy and just and perfect and righteous and good. Instead, we'll question him. We'll doubt his goodness. We'll doubt his faithfulness. We'll doubt the fact that he is ruling over all history and, and working through and by the providence, his providence in every aspect, in every nook, in every cranny of our lives. And he is using his word and he is using the means of his grace and he's using the preaching of his word in our reading and our study and our fellowship with God's people and so on and so forth to help us to wait on him. Now, no one who waits for God is ever disappointed. In his timing, God will take action. And in the second part of his testimony, Christ tells everyone who will listen how God rescued him. Psalm 40, uh, verses 1 through 3 say this, He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And now when our Lord carried our sin to the cross, he was like a prisoner in a dungeon, thrown into a muddy pit or cistern and left to die. The pit is often used as a metaphor for death. So the pit and the miry bog are pictures of death in the grave. And with his feet stuck in the mud and the clay, he looked up at the opening far above and waited for God to stretch down his hand. And God took action in five steps. First, he inclined, as verse 1 says, towards Jesus. As Jesus was at his lowest point, God leaned over and bent down towards him. God the Father does not have a physical body here to lean over literally. Of course, this is a figure of speech to show that God cared about what happened to Jesus and he was concerned about Jesus. Next, God heard his cry, verse 1. With his ear down and into the opening of the cistern, God heard a cry coming from the muddy depths below. And then thirdly, God drew him up from the pit, Verse 2, as Christ waited patiently in the grave, God pulled him out, and our Lord Jesus rose again to life. And then God set his feet upon a rock in verse 2. You see, our Lord Jesus can never suffer again, and his enemies cannot touch him. He reigns forever in glory and has become our great high priest. Hebrews 7, 16 says, by the power of an indestructible life. He always lives to serve us, to intercede for us, to protect us, to pray for us. We do not have to worry that, that Christ will suffer a tragic accident or fall into a pit. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is good news. 
We can trust our God in the midst of waiting. We can trust the Lord in the midst of, of things that seem to be hard, where we're getting tons and tons of rejection and criticism. We can trust the Lord, and we should see these things as a good gift from a good God meant to help us to conform us into the image of Christ. Even that difficult person is a kindness from God because they are being used by God to, to chisel us and to mold us more into the likeness of Christ. Finally, God put a song of praise in his in his mouth, verse 3 says, Christ opened his mouth and sang for joy. And so when Jesus and the disciples left the upper room on the night he was arrested, they sang a hymn, most likely Psalm 118. And after the resurrection, Jesus had a new and an even better song. God put this song into his mouth by rescuing him. A new experience of the grace of God calls for a new song of praise. And now Christ ends this testimony with application psalm 40 verse 4 blessed is the man who makes the lord his trust who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie the same god who rescued jesus will rescue all who trust in him and there is a blessing for everyone who waits patiently for god like jesus did the temptation is to give up hope to become dejected and not trust his promises we see people who become proud because they're successful. They're not in a pit. They have done well for themselves, and they, they seem to have everything they want. And so instead of trusting the Lord, instead of relying on His sufficiency, they rest on their own sufficiency. But you see, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of life, Christ wants us to lift up our eyes and see the goodness of God. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, and yet they are more than can be told. And see, when God sent us his son Jesus, he multiplied or made great his saving work and his plans for us. Not even Christ himself can tell the full measure of the blessings that God has given us for him. And how can this be? How can the blessing of God in Christ be more than Christ himself can communicate to us? The answer is simple. Jesus is more than just one of the many options to God. He is just some myth, some figurehead. He is more than a human savior. He is fully God. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God, uh, Colossians 1.15 says. And in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. Everything that it means to be God, the whole fullness of deity is in him, in Christ. And so in Jesus, the infinite God took on flesh and became a man while still being fully God. And he is our Lord and our Savior. And when God gave us Jesus, he gave us all of himself. That is why he is sufficient. And when Christ came into the world, God did not just add to his mighty deeds in the Old Testament. Jesus is not simply another prophet like Moses or Elijah. God multiplied his wondrous deeds and he made them great. He gave us himself. Christ cannot communicate the full blessings God gave, has given to us in his resurrection because he himself is our boundless, infinite, glorious God. And no matter how much we know of God's goodness and his faithfulness in Christ, there is still more for us to know. 
And this means that the Christian life is an endless journey. You're never going to get to the end of Christ because there is no end to Christ. If you think that you've been there, you've done that in Christ, and you really don't see him, you don't see the treasure that he is. Jesus is big enough to take your breath away for the rest of your life. That's what's so amazing about grace, as Newton sang in Amazing Grace. Some people really ask, what will we do in heaven forever? The idea of eternity makes me uncomfortable. We don't need to worry about being bored in heaven. Christ is endless, endlessly fascinating and eternally amazing. Christ will hold our attention for all of eternity. And now we're going to talk and move uh, to talk about Christ's mission because you can never get to the end of God's goodness to us in Christ. And this will become clearer to us as we move through the second main section of Psalm 40. And so after his testimony, Christ now is about to announce his mission. And God sent Jesus to atone for our sins. As we see in Psalm 46 through 8, which says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now what does this mean? The prophet Samuel rebuked Saul with words similar to these in 1 Samuel 15, 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul had not waited patiently for Samuel, but took matters into his own hands. And the Old Testament also says in a number of places that God is not pleased with sacrifices when a man's heart is far from him. And many scholars think that the point of verse 6 is that obedience from the heart is more important than sacrifice. But in Psalm 40, there is not the slightest hint that a disobedient person is offering these sacrifices. If anything, the context is the astounding faith, the obedience, the patience of David and of Christ after him. And alike so, Christ did wait patiently, and yet God is still not pleased by these sacrifices of bulls and goats. In fact, to make this point even stronger, he says that God did not require sacrifices either. But in fact, God did require these sacrifices in the law of Moses. Verse 6 points to and teaches about four kinds of sacrifices required in Leviticus 1 through 4, namely sacrifice, offering, burnt offering, and sin offering. And together, these represent all the sacrifices that the law of Moses requires. And so, how are we to understand this? Well, Christ announces the end of the Old Testament system of sacrifices in these verses. And even in the best circumstance, the blood of bulls and goats ultimately did not please God. And these are not what God requires for the forgiveness of sins anyway. God is delighted with the willing obedience of Jesus Christ. And so instead of offering the blood and the carcass of animals for sin, Jesus offered his own body as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. Now Jonathan Edwards explained the significance of this when he said this, And though many things have been done in the affair of redemption, Though millions of sacrifices have been offered, and yet nothing was done to purchase redemption before Christ's incarnation. No part of the purchase was made, no part of the price was offered till now. But as soon as Christ was incarnate, the purchase began. And the whole time of Christ's humiliation till the morning that he arose from the, the dead was taken up in this purchase. And then the purchase was entirely and completely finished. 
as nothing was done before Christ's incarnation, and so nothing was done after his resurrection to purchase redemption for men. Nor will there ever be anything more done for all eternity. Verses 6 through 8 also give us a glimpse of this beautiful interaction of God the Father and God the Son for our salvation. Father delights in the Son and His obedience instead of sacrifice and offerings. God delights in doing the Father's will, and each delights in the other. The mutual joy and the delight of the Father and the Son is at the heart of our salvation. And to take this further, the Spirit inspired this psalm, and so we conclude that the Spirit delights in revealing the Father and the the Son and the Father's delight in each other. And this means that God's love for the world and saving sinners flows out of the love that flows between the members of the Trinity. You see, our salvation is rooted in the love and joy that God has in himself. The love of God flowing within the Trinity is like a nuclear reactor that overflows with power to save sinners. God's love for himself is a source of joy and love in our salvation. Our redemption begins with God and with his love. And this is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In fact, we might run out of oil and natural gas someday. The world could conceivably run out of nuclear fuel in some distant future. But the burning energy that fuels our salvation will never, ever run out. God's love for himself is eternally powerful powerful and self-sustaining the father and the son and the holy spirit will never stop loving and delighting in each other and if we're christians our salvation is solid is secure and it's rooted in the unchanging love of our god and now the second part of christ's mission is to announce salvation psalm 49 through 10 says i have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation behold i have not restrained my lips as you know O lord I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so the word told the glad news, verse 9, is another way of saying he preached the gospel. Old Testament scholar Jared Wilson says, The psalmist's determination to proclaim Yahweh's righteousness to the congregation of the faithful is the practical equivalent to the New Testament proclamation of the gospel. You see, Jesus proclaimed the gospel, the glad news of deliverance from the beginning of his ministry in Mark 1, 14 through 15. We see this in, in Luke's gospel as well when he opened the scroll in, uh, from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and he preached the freedom for the captives, the glad news and tidings of Christ. And today Christ continues to preach the gospel. Christ today speaks through the faithful preaching verse-by-verse preaching of his word. In Ephesians 2.17, Paul says that Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Paul was writing to believers in Ephesus, a city in Greece that Jesus never visited. The gospel did not come to Ephesus until some 25 years later after Christ ascended to heaven. Paul and Apollos brought the gospel to Ephesus, and yet Paul says that Christ came and preached peace to them. You see, when the gospel is announced today, Jesus himself is speaking through the faithful verse-by-verse preaching of his word. He sends preachers and evangelists to announce the good news of himself through his word, and he uses them as his mouthpiece. 
And so Christ, we can say, is speaking when his word is faithfully preached verse by verse, line by line, and people are pointed from the text of Scripture to Christ and to uh, his sufficiency from the word. Now, after Christ's testimony and after Christ's mission, Psalm 40 ends with Christ's prayer. Verses 11 through 17 are almost identical to Psalm 70. Pieces and portions of the psalm were used and repurposed later in different settings and situation. And this is the case with these seven verses. And evidently, Christ was still in the pit at the end of this psalm. And at the beginning of the psalm, it seems like he had already been rescued already. But evidently, when he testified to God's rescue in verses 1 through 5, he was speaking by faith. By faith absolutely certain that it would happen. God had heard him and taken thought for him. And so his rescue was as good as done. In fact, Jesus did announce his resurrection before he went to the cross. He knew for certain that God would rescue him. So the shape of this psalm fits with the pattern we have of the life of Christ. Now David prays for mercy. Psalm 40, 11 through 12 says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And when we see this confession of sin, we might think that David can only be talking about himself and not after Christ, about Christ. After all, Jesus himself was sinless. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that the words of this psalm are the words of Christ. Jesus had no sin, but he was made sin for us. The transfer of our sin to our Lord and Savior Jesus was real. We are joined to Christ so completely that he calls our sin his own. And by the same token, his righteousness becomes our own. We are saved by this deep and intimate exchange. As a husband and wife are joined together to become one flesh, as Ephesians 5.31 says, So Christ and the church are joined together in a unity so profound that the sinless Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ, took our sin. In fact, if you consider the number of your sins that each of us have committed without even knowing it, it's not too much for Christ to say that he is overwhelmed by sins that cannot be numbered. And when someone begins a diet, often they will keep a long log of the food that they eat. And the point is to show that all the little things we nibble on do add up. A cookie here and an extra serving there, and soon we're taking in lots of extra calories. And most people who keep a log of these types of things are surprised at the amount they actually eat in a normal day. We would be ashamed if we counted up the number of sins we committed for just one day, and we probably we definitely, I should say, would get that number wrong. We sin with our thoughts, our words, our actions, but there's more. Whenever we do something God's forbidden, we also fail to do the right thing in that situation. And so every sin of commission carries with it an opposite sin of omission. And the reverse is true also. Whenever we fail or neglect to do the right thing, we're also doing the wrong thing. And so every sin, whether omission or commission, is always double what we might think. But there's even more here because James multiplies all of our sins by 10. James says in James 2.10 that whoever fails in one point of the law has broken all of it. Can you say, ouch? And so we can never break just one of the Ten Commandments by itself. Every sin violates the whole law. 
And to make matters even worse, we sin even in our best moments when we're serving the Lord. There has never been a single moment when we have loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Even, even in our most sincere time of prayer, the pure eyes of our holy God see the unbelief, the lukewarmness, the spiritual pride, the hypocrisy, and the selfishness that is in our hearts. We grieve over the sins we see, but God sees far more. He sees us as we are. Our sins are like the dust on a gravel road. My sin and yours are beyond number. And yet, the good news is, is that Christ took all of our sin, the sins of all of his people, every single one of them. He bore the countless sins of countless people. They swarmed around him so thickly that they blinded him. Psalm forty twelve says, My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. You see, it's no small thing for Christ to be the sacrifice for our sin. When he took our sin, it was as if his heart stopped. And yet he called out to God for mercy. The Father's covenant love and his faithfulness was his only hope. And now Christ ended his prayer for deliverance from his enemies. Those who hate Christ will be ashamed. They will be confused and they will be confounded. Psalm 40, 13 through 17 says this, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. See, Christ's closing thought is the comfort of knowing God the Father was thinking of him. The Father delights in the Son, and it was only a matter of time until he, he leaned towards him in the pit, heard his cry, and drew him up. His rescue was as good as done at that time. You see, God did not delay, but at the first light of the third day, he rolled away the stone, and Christ rose again from the dead. You see, our great hope, our great joy, is that God the Father rescued our Lord Jesus Christ and pulled him up from the pits. And if you know Christ, you will be able to wait like he did. If you know him, you will thank him that your sins are forgiven. If you know him, you will delight in him forever. If you know the Lord, you will say, great is the Lord. And you know what? This is good news, friends. I know that this is a lot. This is a lot of things to take in. But at the end of the day, here's the thing. If we will wait on the Lord with trust and confidence in his promises and his words. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. That's what we're talking about here today. In fact, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he taught them in Luke 24. One of the things he taught them from, one of the books that he taught them from is the Psalms. And he showed these disciples on the road to Emmaus, he interpreted to them all the things we can say in the Psalms and in all the Old Testament, of course. But the point is, is Christ taught his disciples the Psalms. He showed them himself in the Psalms. He showed them what he would do and how he would suffer and how and why he was living. You know, this is why we can trust the Lord. 
Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, make it clear that Jesus is sinless. And of course we know, we should know, if we've come to faith in Christ and we've acknowledged that we are sinners in need of a Savior, we know that we are as bad as it gets. And yet Christ rescued us. He reconciled us to God through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, were made alive together with with by, and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved. Colossians 1.15 tells us that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. This is good news. But it also is news that, that we can trust God in the present, knowing that as we look to the future, God's plans are good towards us. And so we wait not with impatience. We wait with patience, knowing that our God uh, is is at work in the world. He's bringing and drawing men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to himself. And even in the midst of the, the times when it's hard, whether financially or marital challenges or family challenges, or we're waiting on uh, some job and uh, something to come along that, that we desire, God is still good and God is still at work. See, that's why we need to trust him. And that's why we need to understand that God doesn't change. God doesn't change. Our God is the same as Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 says. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what this means is we need to trust the Lord. As Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tells us, to trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge him. Maybe you memorize that verse as a child. And you know what? That's a good thing because we should have more of a childlike faith. A faith that says, here, God, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe your promises. Titus 1-2 says that God never lies. That means that God always stands behind his word. God will always act consistently in accordance with his revealed will in the word of God. And he always acts in a way that's consistent with who he is and what he aims to do. And that is profoundly hope-filled. As you are going through the challenges of life, your God is at work. He is at work in, in a thousand million billion different ways, orchestrating good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Amen? And what that means is in the midst of the hard things, when you're dealing with difficult people, you're dealing with the challenges of life that inevitably come in a fallen world, you can trust the Lord because his purposes towards you are good and holy and just and perfect in all of their ways towards you as a child of God. If you're in Christ, that's good news. But it's also terrifying news if you're not in Christ because God will mete out his justice perfectly as he has revealed it in his word and what that means also if you don't know christ you should repent of your sins and put that your faith and hope and confidence only in christ our world tells you to to do whatever you want whenever you want but maybe the lord is is drawing you to himself and i would plead with you today to do what Acts 16 31 says to 
Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved because Christ is the only Savior who can save you. The, the, God, the false gods and the idols of Islam and, and Buddhism and Hinduism and all of the world's philosophies and things that hold us captive, they all will fall to the weight. In fact, there was a very smart man. He was given the gift of wisdom, Solomon, and he said, and he had all this wealth and all the world's people came to him. And he said this in Ecclesiastes 3, again and again and again, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 12, he tells us to fear God and keep his commandments. You see, this is good news also for those of you that aren't Christians. Because God sent forth Christ the Son of God and the Son of Man to bleed and to die and to come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty in your place and for your sin <coughs> and to be buried and rise again. You can escape the fiery fury of the justice of God that is going to hell. A place of unending, unrelenting, conscious punishment. You can have hope today and now and forever if you repent and believe and put your trust and hope in Christ. And that's such good news even for us as Christians because we should be taking this message forward in our lives. We should wait on the Lord. The Lord is at work in our lives. He's helping us. He's helping us to wait on him, to grow more into more like Christ so that we can carry forth the glory of Christ even more and tell of his goodness, of his grace, of his beauty, of his power, of his majesty, of his glory. And that's why the psalm ends the way it does. Let me read uh, Psalm 40, 13 through 17, and we'll wrap, wrap this up. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let, let be, those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. But, hear this, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And may those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's pray. Father we, th Father, we thank you that your word is truth and we trust you, Lord. We know that in the midst of our the situations of our lives, you are orchestrating all things for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, we, we are thankful that you are working through your word and you are producing uh, among your people the fruits of the Spirit, including patience. That will help us, Lord, to persevere until the end because you have held us fast. And we're so thankful that you are a God whose word is true and so we can trust you. And so, Lord, we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, as Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, we trust you, we acknowledge you. And we're thankful, as 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, to be thankful in all things, for this is your will in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you are sufficient in all things and over all things. And so, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we endeavor to proclaim the faithfulness and the goodness of our God 
uh, to others, that, that as they see us in the midst of the stuff of our lives, that they would see us waiting with faith and confidence in you and in your revealed will and in your revealed character. So Lord, help us to grow more in these things and where we have failed and where we have sinned and where we have even walked in our own power, we repent and we ask as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we thank you, Lord, that, that we have discovered even more a sufficient Christ to meet our need, and our need is great. Our need is ongoing. And you meet that need through your person and through your work. And we thank you that you are at work in the world. You are working all things for your good and for your glory. You are turning what was even meant for evil in our lives. And you are turning it around for your good. And you are using it in and for your glory. Even in the hard times where we're waiting on you, where it seems like we're wondering, when is the Lord going to answer? You are at work. So help us in those moments. Help us in those times. Help those who are going through deep and hard seasons of, of grief and hurt and pain, even now to hope in you, that our deliverer, our rock, our fortress. And Lord, we will give you the praise and all the honor as the psalmist ends in Psalm 40. Great is the Lord. You are great, O Lord. You are worthy to be praised. You alone are our King. And we so love you and treasure you. Help us to share of the treasure of Christ in the pages of Scripture with others. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.